evening, my darlings, and welcome to Marley's Ghosts. It's time for another Dreadtime story. Now get yourselves all tucked in. Ready? Good. Let's begin. Tonight's story is A Night of Horror by Dick Donovan. My dear old chum, before you leave England for the East, I claim the redemption of a promise you made to me some time ago that you would give me the pleasure of a week or two of your company. Besides, as you may have already guessed, I have given up the folly of my bachelor days and have taken unto myself the sweetest, dearest little woman that ever walked the face of the earth. We have been married just six months and are as happy as the day is long. And then, this place is entirely after your own heart. It will excite your artistic faculties and appeal with irresistible force to your romantic nature. To call the building a castle is somewhat pretentious, but I believe it has been known as the castle ever since it was built, more than 200 years ago. Hester. Need I say that Hester is my better half? is just delighted with it, and if either of us was in the least degree superstitious, we might see or hear ghosts every hour of the day. Of course, as becomes a castle, we have a haunted room, though my own impression is that it is haunted by nothing more fearsome than rats. Anyway, it is such a picturesque, curious sort of chamber that it, if it doesn't have a ghost, it ought to. But I have no doubt, old chap, that you will make one of us, for, as I remember, you have always had a love for the eerie and creepy, and you cannot forget how angry you used to get with me sometimes for chafing you about your avowed belief in the occult and supernatural, and what you were pleased to the term, unexplainable phenomenon of psychomancy. However, it is possible that you have got over some of the errors of your youth. But whether or not, come down, dear boy, rest assured that you will meet with the heartiest of welcomes, your old pal, Dick Dirkman. The above letter was from an old friend and college chum, who, having inherited a substantial fortune and being passionately fond of the country and country pursuits, had thus the means of gratifying his taste to their fullest bent. Although Dick and I were very different constitutionally, we had always been greatly attached to each other. In the best sense of the term, he was what is generally called a hard-headed practical man. He was fond of saying he never believed in anything he couldn't see, and even that which he could see he was not prepared to accept as truth without due investigation. In short, Dick was neither romantic, poetical, nor, am I afraid, artistic in the literal sense. He preferred facts to fancies, and was possessed of what the world generally calls an unimpressionable nature. For nearly four years I had lost sight of my friend, as I had been wandering about Europe as tutor and companion to a delicate young nobleman. His death had freed me, but I had no sooner returned to England that I was offered and accepted a lucrative appointment in the service of His Highness of Nirzum of Chandalpur in northern India. 
and there was every probability of my being absent for a number of years. On returning home, I had written to Dick to the chambers he had formerly occupied, telling him of my appointment and expressing a fear that unless we snatched a day or two in town, I might not be able to see him, as I had so many things to do. It was true, I had promised that when opportunity occurred, I should do myself the pleasure of accepting his off-proffered hospitality, which I knew to be lavish and generous. I had not heard of his marriage. His letter gave me the first inclination of that fact, and I confess that when I got his missive, I experienced some curiosity to know what kind of lady he succeeded in captivating. I had always had an idea that Dick was cut out for a bachelor life for there was nothing of the ladies' man about him. And he used at one time to speak of the gentler sex with a certain levity and brusqueness of manner that by no means found favor with the majority of his friends. And now Dick was actually married and living in a remote region where most town-bred people would die of ennui. It will be gathered from the foregoing remarks that I did not hesitate about accepting Dick's cordial invitation. I determined to spare a few days at least of my somewhat limited time, and duly notified Dick to that effect, giving him the date of my departure for London and the hour at which I should arrive at the station nearest to his residence. Bleak Hill Castle was situated in one of the most picturesque parts of Wales. Consequently, on the day I appointed, I found myself comfortably ensconced in a smoking carriage of London and Northwestern train. And towards the close of the day, the time of year was May, I was the sole passenger to alight at the way station, where Dick awaited me with a smart dog cart. His greeting was hearty and robust, and when his man had packed in my traps, he gave the handsome little mare that drew the cart the reins and we spanked along the country roads in rare style. Dick always prided himself on his knowledge of horse flesh, and with a sense of keen satisfaction, he drew my attention to the points of the skittish little mare, which bowled along as if we had been merely featherweights. A drive of eight miles through the bracing Welsh air so sharpened our appetites that the smell of dinner was peculiarly welcome telling me to make a hurried toilette as his cook would not risk her reputation by keeping a dinner waiting. Dick handed me over to the guidance of a natty chambermaid. As it was dark when we arrived, I had no opportunity of observing the external characteristics of Bleak Hill Castle. But there was nothing in the interior that suggested bleakness. Warmth, comfort, light held forth promise of carnal delights. Following my guide up a broad flight of stairs and along a lofty and echoing corridor, I found myself in a large and comfortably furnished bedroom. A bright wood fire burned up the hearthstone, for although it was May, the temperature was still very low on the Welsh hills. Hastily changing my clothes, I made my way to the dining room, where Mrs. Dirkman emphasized that welcome her husband had already given me. She was an exceedingly pretty and rather delicate-looking little woman, in striking contrast to her great, bluff, burly husband. A few neighbors had been gathered together to meet me, and we sat down, a dozen all told, to dinner. 
that from a gastronomic point of view left nothing to be desired. The viands were appetizing, the wines perfect, and all the appointments were in perfect consonance and with the good things that were placed before us. It was perhaps natural when the coffee and cigar stage had arrived that conversation should turn upon our host's residence by way of affording me, a stranger to the district, some information. Of course, the information was conveyed to me in a scrappy way, but I gathered in substance that Bleak Hill Castle had originally belonged to a Welsh family, which was chiefly distinguished by the extravagance and gambling promiscities of its male members. It had gone through some exciting times, and numerous strange and startling stories had come to center around it. There were stories of wrong and shame and death, and more than a suggestion of dark crimes. One of these stories turned upon the mysterious disappearance of the wife and daughter of a young scion of the house, whose career had been somewhat shady. His wife was considerably older than he, and it was generally supposed that he had married her for the money. His daughter, a girl of about twelve, was an epileptic patient, while the husband of father was a gloomy, disappointed man. Suddenly, the wife and daughter disappeared. At first, no one felt surprise, but then some curiosity was expressed to know where they had gone. And curiosity led to wonderment, and wonderment to rumor. For people will gossip, especially in a country district. Of course, Mr. Greta Jones, the husband, had to submit to some questioning as to where his wife and child were staying. But being sullen and morose of temperament, he contented himself by brusquely and tersely saying, They'd gone to London. But as no one had seen them go, and no one had heard of their going, the statement was accepted as a perversion of fact. Nevertheless, incredible as it may seem, no one thought it was worth his while to insist upon an investigation. And a few weeks later, Mr. Greta Jones himself went away and to London, as was placed beyond doubt. For a long time, Bleak Hill Castle was shut up, and throughout the countryside, it began to be whispered that sights and sounds had been seen and heard at the castle, which were suggestive of things unnatural. And soon it became crystallized belief in men's minds that the place was haunted. On the principle of giving a dog a bad name, You have only to couple ghosts with the name of an old country residence like this castle for it to fall into disfavor and be generally shunned. As might have been expected in such a region, the castle was shunned. No tenant could be found for it. It was allowed to go to ruin, and for a long time was the haunt of smugglers. They were cleared out in the process of time, and at last hard-headed, practical Dick Dirkman heard of the place through a London agent, went down to see it, took a fancy to it, and bought it for an old song. And having taste and money, he soon converted the half-ruined building into a country gentleman's home, and thither he carried his bride. Such was the history of Bleak Hill Castle as I gathered it in outline during the post-prenatal chat on that memorable evening. On the following day, I found the place all that my host had described in his letter to me. 
Its situation was windows that didn't command a magnificent view of landscape and sea. He and I rambled about the house. He evinced a keen delight in showing me every nook and corner, and in expatiating on the beauties of locality generally, and of the advantages of his dwelling place in particular. Why he reserved taking me to the so-called haunted chamber until the last I never have known, but so it was. And as he threw upon the heavy door and ushered me into the apartment, he smiled ironically and remarked, Ha ha, well, old man, this is the ghost's den, and as I consider that a country mansion of this kind should, in the interest of all tradition and of fiction writers, who, under the guise of truth, like the Aeneans, have its haunted room. I have let this place go untouched, except that I have made it a sort of lumber closet for antiques and moldering old furniture, which I picked up at a bargain in Warder Street, London. But I needn't tell you that. I regard the ghost stories as rot. I did not reply to my friend at once, for the room absorbed my attention. It was unquestionably the largest of the bedrooms in the house, and while keeping with the rest of the house, had characteristics of its own. The walls were paneled with dark oak. The floor was oak and polished. There was a deep V-shaped bay formed by an angle of the castle, and in each side of the bay was a diamond-paned window, and each window an oak seat, which was also a chest with an ancient iron lock. A large wooden bedstead with massive hangings stood in the corner, and the rest of the furniture was a very nondescript character and calls for no special mention. In a word, the room was picturesque, and to me at once suggested the mise-en-scene for all sorts of dramatic situations of a weird and eerie character. I ought to add that there was a very large fireplace with a most capacious hearthstone on which stood a pair of ponderous and rusty steel dogs. Finally, the window commanded superb views, and altogether my fancy was pleased, and my artistic susceptibilities appealed to an irresistible manner, so that I replied to my friend thus, I like this room, Dick. I like it awfully. Let me occupy it, will you? He laughed. Well, upon my word, you are an eccentric fellow. Want to give up the comfortable den which I have assigned to you for this moldy, draughty, dingy old lumber room? However, here he shrugged his shoulders, there is no accounting for taste, (laughs) and as his liberty, my friends do as they like. So I tell the servants to put the bed in order, light a fire, and cart your traps from the other room. I was glad and had carried my point, for I frankly confessed to having romantic tendencies. I was fond of old things, old stories and legends, old furniture, and anything that was removed above the dull of the commonplace. This room, in a certain sense, was unique, and I was charmed with it. When pretty little Mrs. Dirkman, head of the arrangements said with a laugh that could not conceal a certain nervousness. (laughs) I'm sorry you are going to sleep in this wretched room. It always makes me shudder. 
for it seems so uncomfortable. Besides, you know, although Dick laughs at me and calls me a little goose, I'm inclined to believe there may be some foundation for the current stories. Anyway, I wouldn't sleep in the room for a crown of gold. I do hope you will be comfortable and not be frightened to death or into insanity by gruesome apparitions. I hastened to assure my hostess that I would be comfortable enough. While for apparitions, I was not likely to be frightened by them. The rest of the day was spent exploring in the country, round about. After dinner, Dick and I played billiards until one o'clock, and then having drained a final peg, I retired to rest. When I reached the haunted chamber, I found that much had been done and an air of cheerfulness and comfort to the place. Some rugs had been laid about the floor, a modern chair or two introduced, a wood fire blazed on the hearth. On a little occasional table that stood near the fire was a silver jug filled with hot water and an antique decanter containing spirits together with lemon and sugar in case I wanted a final brew. I could not but feel grateful for my host and hostess's thoughtfulness, and having donned my dressing gown and slippers, I drew a chair within the radius of the wood fire's glow and proceeded to fill my pipe for a few whiffs previous to tumbling into bed. This was a habit of mine, a habit of years and years of growth, and while perhaps an objectionable one, and in some respects, it afforded me solace and conduced to a restful sleep. So I lit my pipe and fell to pondering and trying to see if I could draw any suggestiveness as to my future from the glowing embers. Suddenly, a remarkable thing happened. My pipe was drawn gently from my lips and laid upon the table, and at the same moment I heard what seemed to be a sigh. For a moment or two I felt confused and wondered whether I was awake or dreaming. But there was the pipe on the table, and I could have taken the most solemn oath that to the best of my belief, it had been placed there by unseen hands. My feelings, as may be imagined, were peculiar. It was the first time in my life that I had ever been the subject of a phenomenon which was capable of being attributed to supernatural agency. After a little reflection and some reasoning with myself, however, I tried to believe that my own senses had made me a fool and that in some half-somulant, dreamy condition, I had removed the pipe myself and placed it on the table. Having come to this conclusion, I divested myself of my clothing, extinguished the two tall candles, and jumped into bed. Although usually a good sleeper, I did not go to sleep at once, as was my wont by lay and thinking of many things and mingling with my changing thoughts was a low, monotonous undertone. Nature's symphony of booming sea on the distant beach, and a bass piping rising occasionally to a shrill and weird upper note. For its situation, the house was exposed to every wind that blew, hence its name, Bleak Hill Castle, and probably a southeast gale would have made itself to an uncomfortable degree in this room which was in the southeast angle of the building. But now the booming sea and wind had a lullaby effect, and my nerves sinking into restful repose 
I fell asleep. How long I slept, I do not know and never shall know. But I awoke suddenly and with a start, for it seemed as if a stream of ice-cold water was pouring over my face. With an impulse of indefinable alarm, I sprang up in bed, and then a strange, awful, ghastly sight met my view. I don't know that I could be described as a nervous man in any sense of the word. Indeed, I think I may claim to be freer from nerves than the average man. Nor would my worst enemy, if he had a regard for truth, accuse me of lacking courage. And yet I confess here, frankly, that the sight I gazed upon appalled me. Yet I was fascinated with a horrible fascination that rendered it impossible for me to turn my eyes away. I seemed bound by some strange, weird spell. My limbs appeared to have grown rigid. There was a sense of burning in my eyes. My mouth was parched and dry. My tongue swollen, so it seemed. Of course, these were mere sensations, but they were sensations I never wished to experience again. They were sensations that tested my sanity, and the sight that held me in thrall was truly calculated to test the nerves of the strongest. There, in mid-air, between floor and ceiling, surrounded or made visible by a trembling, nebulous light that was weird beyond the power of any words to describe, was the head and bust of a woman. The face was paralyzed in, into an unutterable, awful expression of stony horror. The long black hair was tangled and disheveled, and the eyes appeared to be bulging from the head. But this was not all. Two ghostly hands were visible. The fingers of one were twined savagely in the black hair, and the other grasped a long-bladed knife, and with it hacked and gashed and tore and stabbed at the bare white throat of the woman, and the blood gushed forth from the jagged wounds, reddening the specter's hand and flowing in one continuous stream to the oak floor where I heard it drip, 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 until my brain seemed as if it would burst and I felt as if I were going raving mad. Then I saw with my strained eyes the unmistakable sign of death pass over the woman's face. And next, the devilish hands flung the mangled remnants away, and I heard a low chuckle of satisfaction. Heard, I say, and swear it, as plainly as I have ever heard anything in this world. The light had faded. The vision of crime and death had gone, and yet the spell held me. Although the night was cold, I believed I was bathed in perspiration. I think I tried to cry out. Nay, I, I'm sure I did. But no sound came from my burning, parched lips. My tongue refused utterance. It clove to the roof of my mouth. Could I have moved so much as a joint of my little finger, I could have broken the spell. At least, such was the idea that occupied my half-stunned brain. It was a nightmare of waking horror. I shudder now and shrink within myself as I recall it. But the revelation, for revelation it was, 
had not yet reached its final stage. Out of the darkness, once more evolved a faint, phosphorus glow, and in the midst of it appeared the dead body of a beautiful girl, with the throat all gashed and bleeding, the red blood flowing in a crimson flood over her nightrobe, which only partially concealed her young limbs, and the cruel, spectral hands, dyed with her blood, appeared again and grasped her, and lifted her and bore her along. Then that vision faded, and a third appeared. This time I seemed to be looking into a gloomy, damp, arched cave or cellar, and the horror that froze me was intensified as I saw the hands busy preparing a hole in the wall at one end of the cave, and presently they lifted two bodies, the body of the woman and the body of the young girl, all gory and besmirched, and the hands crushed them into the hole in the wall and then proceeded to brick them up. All these things I saw as I have described, and this I solemnly swear to be the truth, as I hope for mercy at the supreme judgment. It was a vision of a crime, a vision of merciless, pitiless, damnable murder. How long it all lasted, I don't know. Science has told me that dreams which seem to embrace a long series of years last but seconds. And in the few moments of consciousness that remain to the drowning man, his life scrolls unrolled before his eyes. This vision of mine, therefore, may only have lasted seconds. But it seemed to me hours, years, nay, an eternity. With that final stage in the ghostly drama of blood and death, the spell was broken. And flinging my arms wildly about, I know that I uttered a great cry as I sprang up in the bed. Have I been in the throes of a ghastly nightmare? I asked myself. Every detail of the horrific vision I recalled, and yet somehow it seemed to me that I had been the victim of a hideous nightmare. I felt ill, strangely ill. I was wet and clammy with perspiration, and nervous to a degree that I had never before experienced in my existence. Nevertheless, I noted everything distinctly. On the hearthstone, there was still a mass of glowing red embers. I heard the distant booming of the sea, and round the house the wind moaned with a peculiar, eerie, creepy sound. Suddenly I sprang from the bed, impelled hitherto by an impulse I was bound to obey, and by the same impulse I was drawn towards the door. I laid my hand on the handle. I turned it, opened the door, and gazed into the long, dark corridor. A sigh fell upon my ears. (sighs) An unmistakable human sigh in which was expressed an intensity of suffering and sorrow that thrilled me to the heart. I shrank back, and I was about to close the door, when out of the darkness was evolved the glowing figure of a woman, clad in blood-stained garments with disheveled hair. She turned her white, corpse-like face towards me, and her eyes pleaded with a pleading that was irresistible. 
while she pointed the index finger of her left hand downwards and then beckoned me. Then I followed whither she led. I could no more resist than the unrestrained needle can resist the attracting magnet. Clad only in my night apparel and with bare feet and legs, I followed the specter along the corridor, down the broad oak stairs, traversing another passage to the rear of the building until I found myself standing before a heavy barred door. At that moment, the specter vanished, and I retraced my steps like one who walked in a dream. I got back to my bedroom, but how I I don't quite know nor have I any recollection of getting into bed. Hours afterwards, I awoke. It was broad daylight. The horror of the night came back to me with an overwhelming force and made me faint and ill. I managed, however, to struggle through my toilet and hurried from that haunted room. It was a beautifully fine morning. The sun was shining brightly and the birds caroled blithely in every tree and bush. I strolled out to the lawn and paced up and down. I was strangely agitated and asked myself over and over again if what I had seen or dreamed had had any significance. Presently, my host came out. He visibly started as he saw me. Hello, old chap. What's the matter with you? He exclaimed. You look jolly queer, as though you'd been having a bad night of it. I have had a bad night. His manner became more serious and grave. What? Seen anything? Yes. The deuce you don't mean it, really. Indeed I do. I have gone through a night of horror such as I could not live through again. But let us have breakfast first. And then I will try and make you understand what I have suffered, and you shall judge for yourself whether any significance is to be attached to my dream or whatever you'd like to call it. We walked without speaking into the breakfast room, where my charming hostess greeted me cordially, but she, like her husband, noticed my changed appearance and expressed alarm and anxiety. I reassured her by saying I'd had a rather restless night and didn't feel particularly well, and that it was a mere passing ailment. I was unable to partake of much breakfast, and both my good friend and his wife again showed some anxiety and pressed me to state the cause of my distress. As I could not see any good cause that was to be gained by concealment, and even at the risk of being laughed at by my host, I recounted the experience I had gone through during the night of terror. So far from my host showing any disposition to ridicule me, as I quite expected he would have done, he became unusually thoughtful and presently said, Either this is a wild fantasy of your own brain, or there is something in it. The door that the ghost of the woman led you to is situated on the top of a flight of stone steps, leading to a vault below the building, which I have never used, and have never even had the curiosity to enter, though I did once go to the bottom of the steps. But the place was so exceedingly suggestive of a tomb that I mentally exclaimed, I have no use for this dungeon, and so I shut it up, bolted and barred the door, and never opened it since. I answered that the time had come when he must once more descend into the cellar or vault or whatever it was. 
He asked me if I would accompany him, and of course I said I would. So he summoned his great gardener, and after much searching about, the key of the door was found. But even then the door was only opened with difficulty, as lock and key alike were foul with rust. As we descended the slimy, slippery stone steps, each of us carrying a candle, a rank, moldy smell greeted us, and a cold, noisome atmosphere pervaded the place. The steps led into a huge vault that apparently extended under the greater part of the building. The roof was arched and was supported by brick pillars. The floor was the natural earth, was soft and oozy. The miasma was almost overpowering, notwithstanding that there was ventilating slits in the wall in various places. We proceeded to explore this vast cellar and found that there was an air shaft which apparently communicated with the roof of the house, but it was choked with rubbish, old boxes, and the like. The gardener cleared this away, and then, looking up, we could see the blue sky overhead. Continuing our exploration, we noted that in a recess formed by the angles of the wall was a quantity of bricks and mortar. Under other circumstances, this would not, perhaps, have aroused curiosity or suspicion. But in this instance, it did. And we examined the wall thereabouts with painful interest, until the conviction was forced upon us that a space of over a yard in width and extending from floor to roof had recently been filled in. I was drawn towards the new brickwork by some subtle magic, some weird fascination. I examined it with an eager, critical, curious interest, and the thoughts that passed through my brain were reflected in the faces of my companions. We looked at each other, and each knew by some unexplainable instinct that was passing in his fellow's mind. It seemed to me we are face to face with some mystery, remarked Dick solemnly. Indeed, throughout all the years I had known him, I had never before seen him so serious. Usually his expression was that of good-humored cynicism. But now he might have been a judge about to pronounce the doom of death on a red-handed sinner. Yes, I answered. There is a mystery, unless I have been tricked by my own fancy. Huh. It is strange, muttered Dick to himself. Well, sir, chimed the gardener, you know, there have been some precious queer stories going about for a long time. And before you come and took the place, plenty of folks roundabout used to say they'd seen some uncanny sights. And never had no faith in them stories myself. But after all, maybe there's some truth in them. Dick picked up a brick and began to tap the wall with it where the new work was. And the taps gave forth a hollow sound, quite different from the sound produced when the other parts of the wall were struck. I say, old chap, exclaimed my host, with a sorry attempt at a smile. Upon my word! I begin to experience a sort of uncanny kind of feeling. I'll be hanged if I'm not going to get superstitious as you are. 
You may call me superstitious if you like, but either I have seen what I have seen or my senses have played the fool with me. Anyway, let us put it to the test. How? By breaking away some of the new brickwork. Dick laughed a laugh that wasn't a laugh as he asked, What do you expect to find? (laughs) I hesitated what to say, and he added the answer himself. Moldering bones, if you're ghostly visitor hasn't deceived you. Moldering bones, I echoed involuntarily. Gardner, have you got a crowbar amongst your tools? Dick asked. The man obeyed the command. This is a strange sort of business altogether, Dick continued, after glancing around the vast and gloomy cellar. But upon my word, to tell you the truth... I'm half ashamed of myself for yielding to anything like superstition. It strikes me that you'll find you are the victim of a trick of the imagination, and that these boogie fancies of yours have placed us in a rather ridiculous position. To answer this, I could not possibly resist reminding Dick that even scientists have admitted that there were certain phenomenon, they called them, natural phenomenon that could not be accounted for by ordinary laws. Dick shrugged his shoulders and remarked with assumed indifference, Perhaps, perhaps it is so. He proceeded to fill his pipe with tobacco, and having lit it, he smoked with a nervous energy quite unusual with him. The gardener was only away about ten minutes, but it seemed infinitely longer. He brought both a pick's axe and a crowbar with him, and in obedience to his master's orders, he commenced to hack at the wall. A brick was soon dislodged. Then the crowbar was inserted in the hole and a mass prized out. From the opening came forth a sickening odor, so that we all drew back instinctively, and I am sure we all shuddered, and I saw the pipe fall from Dick's lips. But he snatched it up quickly and puffed at it vigorously until a cloud of smoke hung in the fetid and stagnant air. And picking up a candle from the ground where it had been placed, he approached the hole, holding the candle in such a position that its rays were thrown into the opening. In a few moments, he started back with an exclamation. My God! My God! The ghost hasn't lied! He said, and I noticed that his face was pale. I peered into the hole and so did the gardener, and we both drew back with a start, for sure enough, in that recess were decaying human remains. This is an awful business that must be investigated, said Dick. Come, let us go. We needed no second bidding. We were only too glad to quit the place of horror and get into the fresh air and bright sunlight. We verily felt We had come out of a tomb, and we knew once more that the adage, murder will out, had been proved. Half an hour later, Dick and I were driving to the nearest town to lay information of the awful discovery we had made, and the subsequent search carried out by the police brought two skeletons to light. Critical medical examination left not the shadow of a doubt that they were the remains of a woman and a girl, and each had been brutally murdered. Of course, it became necessary to hold an inquest, 
and the police set to work to collect evidence as to the identity of the bodies hidden in the recess in the wall. Naturally, all the stories which had been current for so many years throughout the country were revived, and the gossips were busy in retelling all they had heard, with many additions of their own, of course. But the chief topic was that of the strange disappearance of the wife and daughter of the once owner of the castle, Greta Jones. This story had been touched upon the previous night during the after-dinner chat in my host's smoking room. Morgan, as was remembered, had gambled his fortune away and married a lady much older than himself who bore him a daughter who was subject to epileptic fits. When this girl was about 12, she and her mother disappeared from the neighborhood and according to the husband's account, they had gone to London. Then he left and the people troubled themselves no more about him and his belongings. A quarter of a century had passed since that period, and Bleak Hill Castle had gone through many vicissitudes until it fell into the hands of my friend Dick Dirkman. The more the history of Greta Jones was gone into, the more it was made clear that the remains which had been bricked up in the cellar were those of his wife and daughter. The unfortunate girl and woman had been brutally and barbarously murdered. There wasn't a doubt. The question was, who murdered them? After leaving Wales, Greta Jones, as was brought to light, led a wild life in London. One night, while in a state of intoxication, he was knocked down by a cab, and so seriously injured that he died while being carried to the hospital, and with him his secret. For could there be any reasonable doubt that even if he was not the actual murderer, he convived the crime. But there was reason to believe that he had killed his wife and child with his own hand, and that with the aid of a navy whose service he bought, he bricked the bodies up in the cellar. It was remembered that a navy named Howell Williams had been in the habit of going to the castle frequently, and that suddenly he became possessed of what was, for him, a considerable sum of money. For several weeks he drank hard. Then, being a single man, he packed up his few belongings and gave out that he was going to California, and all efforts to find him failed. So much for this ghastly crime. As to the circumstances that led to its discovery, it was curious that I should have been selected as the medium for bringing it to light. Why it should have been so, I cannot and do not pretend to explain. I have recorded facts as they occurred. I leave others to solve the mystery. It was not a matter of surprise that Mrs. Dirkman should have been deeply affected by the terrible discovery, and she declared to her husband that if she were to remain at the castle, she would either go mad or die. And so poor Dick, who was devoted to his charming little wife, got out as soon as he could, and once more Bleak Hill Castle fell into neglect and ultimate ruin, until at last it was razed to the ground and modern buildings reared on its site. As for myself, that night of horror I endured under Dick's roof affected me to such an extent that my hair became prematurely gray, and even now, when I think of the agony I endured, I shudder with an indefinable sense of fear. The End Thank you for listening to Marley's Ghost 
with me, your ghostess, Deborah Marley. You can connect with me on Instagram and Twitter at Marley's Ghosts or send me an email at Marley's Ghosts Podcast at gmail.com. I love hearing from you. If you enjoyed the podcast and would like to support the show, visit my Patreon where we have lots of tiers to choose from, each with their own special treats. Also, rate and review so our community of Dreadtime listeners can grow. Until next time, my darlings, sleep well.